But our payer is exactly what you stated. Prepare, anticipate, engage, evaluate, reward. And each of those in the book, uh, for each of those, we have very specific recommendations on how healthcare providers can implement uh, each of those components in practice. And um, again, inspired by uh, not just our experience, but also the data that we got in our, our survey. How could the patient experience be utterly transformed if we brought hospitality back into healthcare and the hospital? Let's talk all about it with author and healthcare and hospitality expert Peter Yesowich right here on episode 441 of the Nurse Keith Show. Hey there, this is Nurse Keith. This podcast is always about you and your personal professional development, your career, and the healthcare system in the big, big picture. And I'm here to share education, ideas, diatribes, and informative interviews with some of the most inspiring people from the worlds of healthcare, nursing, entrepreneurship, and beyond. I love having you along for the ride. And I thank you from the bottom of my nurse podcaster's heart for being part of the growing Nurse Keith Nation. If you'd like to help other people find the show, I think you likely know what to do, which is to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Google, Amazon, or Spotify, or any other podcast app that you happen to use, or just share the show with someone who you think might benefit from it or enjoy listening to it. You can also become a patron at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, forward slash nurse Keith, $2 a month can really help join the other patrons who support the show and keep us rolling right along. As I said, we are here with Peter Yesowich, PhD. He and his fellow author, Stowe Shoemaker, PhD, have written a book called Hospitable Healthcare, Just What the Patient Ordered. And Peter, I know you've been making the rounds of podcasts. You and I were just chatting about that off the air, and you're trying to spread the gospel of hospitality being brought back into healthcare. My first question for you is what is the connection between healthcare and hospitality, and why have we lost it? Well, Keith, good morning and delighted to be with you. Thank you for the opportunity. Hopefully, this won't be a diatribe. I heard that in your introduction. Uh, this will be it. more of an enlightened conversation. Uh, let me answer your question with a question, and then I'll answer your question. And that is, have you or any of your listeners had a personal experience with healthcare that went wrong? I'm sure hundreds, if not thousands, of my listeners have had such an experience. I have definitely had enough experiences that went wrong that have told me that something has to change. And right. even as a healthcare provider, knowing that something has to change. Right. And to a person, I will tell you, I've not met anyone, <clears throat> Keith, that has told me they haven't. But here's the answer that I think begins the conversation. And that is, generally, when things have gone wrong, it has nothing to do with the clinical outcome. And it has everything to do with the way the service was delivered. And therein is the connection to hospitality. And that is the way that we greet, serve, and respond to patients throughout that journey, 
whether it's a visit to the dental office or an emergency visit to a hospital or a walk-in clinic or an elective procedure that is going to require somebody to be hospitalized for a couple of days. It's very, very rarely the clinical outcome that is the source of that dissatisfaction, but rarely it's, but um, I say not rarely, obviously most of the time it is a result of the way that the service was delivered. We call it the deficit, the hospitality deficit in the delivery of healthcare. So I've often thought in the past, and I think I probably wrote an article about it many years ago, but I've written so many, it's hard to remember. I just think about the etymological root of hospitality and hospital. There's got to be a connection there that can't be a coincidence, right? That's correct. There is. Yeah, for sure. And originally inspired, if you look at the etymology of the word... That the inspiration, as I understand it, for the evolution of the term was that the delivery of care in hospitals would be hospitable, and hence the connection. And um, you know, if you think about the the specific application of this uh, in in our book, um, which really is a recitation of the results of research that we did with 1,200 adults in the U.S. So this is not just a book with opinions from two guys that <laughs> have opinions <clears throat> and have some experience in the, in both categories. But we went out and we surveyed 1,200 adults to get their impressions of 22 specific points of engagement, service engagement, between hospitality and healthcare. These are common to both. I'll give you an example. It would be the easier difficulty of making an appointment oh my or reservation. Mm-hmm. Or how about this one? Knowing the cost of the service before it's actually delivered. Mm-hmm. Or how about this one? The arrival experience and how you're greeted or the arrival environment Or another one that is uh, interesting that we discovered in our research is whether or not the provider of the service asks you for feedback about your experience after the service has been delivered. Now, we've examined those and a a bunch of others. And what we did is we looked at the 1,200 adults' respondents' opinions about those 22 points of engagement for five categories, hospitals, walk-in clinics, doctor's offices, lodging, which would include hotels and resorts and restaurants. So the way your listeners should think about this, if there's a big spreadsheet that has going down the left-hand side, 22 service points of engagement. On the top, you have five different columns. And in each of those cells, we have 1,200 observations. So we have a really, really robust data set for us to actually write the book and offer these opinions. Hmm. Okay. And if you're looking at these different um, areas of engagement with the public, from hospital to hotel to restaurant to doctor's uh, office or clinic, do these five principles of hospitality that you identified in the book do they can they be um, can they be laid over all of those and used in this basically the same way, even though hospitals and hotels are delivering a different product? Sure. Again, great question. Let let me uh, tell you how we evolved the five themes of hospitality deficit, and then hopefully that will be clearer. Um, the way to think about this is we have this huge matrix of all the, all the data. We run all the analytics on it, and out the back end, we discovered that there are five clusters 
of of these service attributes that have a theme and that each of those clusters we we noticed that the the deficit in the delivery of the healthcare service we measure that and we see what those differences are so for example the number one source of this deficit and dissatisfaction on the on the part of adults in the delivery of healthcare this probably will come as no surprise to you and to your listeners is not knowing or understanding the cost of the service before the service is delivered. Um, here's a, a wonderful example. Um, uh, you know, for example, if you were going to book a, a vacation to uh, anywhere, to Mexico, that you know the price of that actually before you depart. And when you check out, that price is probably going to be an accurate reflection of what you thought it was going to be. Uh, same would be true if you uh, uh, book, uh, obviously, a reservation at a hotel, if you book an airline flight, whatever it might be. All those prices are transparent, and you can confirm that before you make the decision to buy. Now, if you click out of hospitality, get into healthcare, and say, well, how does that work in healthcare? Well, as you know, uh, for the most part, the prices of the services that are delivered generally are not transparent. Um, in fact, so much so that, as you're aware, that under the Trump administration, there was a proclamation about how hospitals had to begin to make available to the public transparent pricing on 300 different uh, procedures. And it's interesting that, you know, they've been monitoring that since that uh, proclamation was made about two years ago. And generally, there's been compliance, but there have also been some fines that have been rendered too. So the whole idea is that the, the, uh, in that example, the intention was to give consumers an opportunity to see the price of the service before uh, it is actually delivered. Now that not being able to see that, the visibility, lack of visibility there, as I say, is the number one source of dissatisfaction <clears throat> for people. So the question is, well, what do you do about that? Well, uh, in our book, um, for each of these themes, and I'll mention the other four in just a second, but just to get closure on the first one here, um, we make specific recommendations on how healthcare providers could do that. So uh, let me give you uh, an example. Uh, if you take your car in for a service next week, you're going to get an estimate. You'll have to sign that before they actually do the work, right? I gave you the example in hospitality. Now, We've all already discussed that that doesn't exist uh, for the most part in healthcare. So how would a healthcare provider address that? Well, how about this idea? At the time that they confirm your appointment, they would also, with that confirmation, send you a pro forma estimate of what the cost will be for you. Now, typically, that's your copay. And you say, well, how does a healthcare provider do that? Well, they all know essentially the cost of delivering the service based on the contracts that they have with the insurance companies that are going to pay them for that. Uh, although that's not disclosed, as you know, to the public for the most part. Uh, having said that, they know what their cost of delivery is. So they could actually, uh, when they approve your insurance to confirm your appointment, they could very easily run a little software program that says, okay, Keith, delighted to see you Thursday next week, 2 p.m., and the estimated cost of your visit will be between X and Y. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute. Uh, what happens if I get there and they need to do more tests and so forth? Well, we we go ahead and we provide that disclaimer in the pro forma estimate and say this is subject to confirmation at the conclusion of your visit based on the procedures and, and the tests and so forth we need to, need to administer. And uh, so now you look at that and say, wow, that's kind of interesting because now I have a pretty good sense of at least what the range is. And what that does is it reduces that anxiety that people have 
about what the cost will be, but importantly, hopefully, it reduces the anxiety about getting a surprise bill. And we've all read uh, enough about you know, surprise billing. And I think actually most people that I speak with um, tell me that they've received one. You know, they got one from the anesthesiologist they weren't expecting. They got one from you know somebody else they weren't expecting. But anyway, there's an example. So at the time of confirming an appointment, a pro forma estimate is given of, the, of your copay because your insurance has been approved for that appointment. Right. I actually just got a surprise bill um, a couple of weeks ago. I went to the dermatologist, had to have a little something removed. It wasn't cancerous. It was just a, something that had to get taken off. And I paid my copay f- f- that my insurance you know, said that I needed to pay a specialist, which was 50 or $75. I don't remember. And then mm-hmm. I thought that was it. And then about a month later, I get a bill for, I think it was $147. Mm. I'm like, okay, I didn't expect Mm. this visit to cost me $200. I expected it to cost 50, which was the copay or, you know, or, well, we could go on and on about this, this cost aspect of healthcare, because it's, it's kind of outrageous and maddening. And for those of us who work on the the other side of the stethoscope, so to speak, we also have to, in some way, try to make up for the discomfort and the disgruntledness that the patient is experiencing. And that's where our customer service skills come in, because you get a patient who's already upset because they just realized how much this experience is going to cost them, for instance. Yeah, let me give you the <clears throat> like the three uh, kind of um, uh, underpinning sentiments that that lead to that one dissatisfaction, not knowing you know the price or understanding the cost. Um, and, and specifically, there there's three aspects of that. That is not being able to understand the bill. Number one, and we've all had that experience when the invoice is rendered. You look at that and you say, "Well, what is this for?" And you know, how is it a Tylenol could cost eight dollars, and you know, things of that nature. The second dimension of that is again this this idea of knowing the price in advance of the service, and then the third is really an interesting one, and that is whether or not the cost of the care is consistent with your expectation. Now that goes back to the idea of giving a pro forma estimate because that establishes the expectation. And in so doing, what happens is you really begin to uh, to ameliorate the you know the anxiety that people have about this aspect of it. You know the other um, I'll mention these quickly. The other four sources of of dissatisfaction and deficit in in the delivery of healthcare. This is kind of in descending order. You know, after this issue of not knowing the price, you'd be interested to note that the second has to do with whether or not patients feel that their their business or their patronage is appreciated by healthcare service mm-hmm. providers. Mm-hmm. Be interesting to know that uh, most adults tell us they don't feel that way. You know, it's interesting in hospitality, um, the training programs that exist in, in whether it's you know lodging or dining really emphasize how the the people who deliver the service should repeatedly thank the patrons for their patronage. You know, it 
times it's, it's a little overdone, but you know, you're thanked upon arrival, you're thanked upon departure, you're certainly thanked when you settle the bill. Mm-hmm. And if you think about healthcare experiences, uh, according to our sample, you know, more often than not, that's not the case. So the sense of kind of appreciation that is so important in service delivery is not apparent in healthcare. Mm-hmm. The, uh, the third dimension is, um, again, probably come as no surprise that this is the, the source of a, a deficit in, in this, this hospitable healthcare, is the whole reception experience. And there are really four dimensions of that. Whether or not the arrival experience is welcoming, you know, do we feel welcomed when we're there? Uh, whether or not the arrival environment is welcoming. And obviously, that takes us into a whole different conversation about about uh, developing uh, more hospitable environments from the standpoint of you know ambient color and sound and scent and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, the third is uh, whether or not the people uh, in that uh, reception or who provide the reception make me feel welcome. Do I genuinely feel that? And then the the, the last is whether or not those people appear to be eager to serve me. So those are kind of the four components of that, this uh, sense of the arrival experience not being particularly hospitable. Uh, the fourth, interestingly enough, has, happens to do with service logistics. And that's this issue of can I get an appointment when I want one? Can I get a reservation when I want one? You know, one of the things the hospitality industry has done, we think very, very well, is allowed patients the opportunity to select appointment days and times that are convenient for them. And obviously in healthcare, that's generally not the case. You know, typically you're offered, you know, a day or a time and say, this is it. And you say, well, gee, I can't do that. I've got an important appointment or I'm traveling, whatever it might be. And you can sense the, the kind of uh, discontent, you know, on the other side of the phone and they search for other alternatives. But um, more and more, some healthcare providers are doing that, but the idea is that allow patients to do that on their own time and turns. Now, naturally, for emergency, emergency procedures, that's not an option, but for all of the elective procedures, it would be. And then uh, another dimension of that is the whether or not the check-in process is easy. You know, we all have examples of, you know, having actually gone back to the same provider more than once and being handed the clipboard you know, again, or the iPad to go ahead and and complete the same information we completed six months prior. You know, that's a source of real dissatisfaction for people. And they have a hard time understanding why healthcare can't can't improve that when, you know, they arrive at a a hotel uh, or a resort uh, that has all of their information on file from a previous visit. And all they have to do is show a driver's license for identification. Uh, anyway, the last is um, the fifth uh, source of this um, deficit is uh, all about service recovery. And that is when things go wrong, you know, how well does the uh, does the uh, industry or do the entity actually uh, resolve the problem? So a couple of interesting dimensions of that. That is, if you have a dispute about the value of the service, you know, how easy or difficult is it to resolve that? You know, and, and the restaurant business, you know, if the entree is cold, uh, the server will immediately try to replace that. And what will happen is the manager comes over and said, gee, we're sorry, um, uh, this one is on us, or we'll make an adjustment to the bill. What happens if you dispute a uh, an experience with a healthcare provider? Well, I think we all know the answer to that. Um, the provider makes me feel satisfied with the service I received. In the hospitality industry, people are trained to do that. 
uh, or the provider will re resolve any problems that I express, you know, quickly. And again, we all know and have heard uh, stories of despair about people who've disputed, you know, the uh, the either the service or the cost with a with an insurance company, and that seems to go on on infinitum. Uh, whether or not people express dissatisfaction if they're unhappy with the service, uh, we we noticed something fascinating in our research that. People are quick to express dissatisfaction in the hospitality industry. I think we've we've all done that, where you know we've gone online and you know let's say it was an anniversary dinner that you planned that went wrong, and well you get home and you get online and you have blazing you know negative commentary mm -hmm. about uh, that particular restaurant. Um, you notice that you don't see a lot of that about healthcare providers, and there's an interesting psychology we think uh, associated with that. You know, one is that. You know, we don't, as consumers, generally understand well enough the context of healthcare delivery to be critical. You know, so we don't know the vocabulary. We don't know what necessarily should be good or bad. Uh, you know, we just assume that the service we've received, you know, clinically has been appropriate. But more importantly, there's this kind of unspoken ethos on the part of consumers that we should not criticize healthcare providers. You know, we shouldn't criticize physicians and nurses uh, and so forth because we are raised correctly to show great reverence to them, you know, because of their training and their commitment. And as a result of that, there's a genuine reluctance on the part of consumers to to be critical, to diss them. That's why you don't see a lot of, you know, critical commentary online about uh, Dr. Carlson. You know, mm -hmm. I went to see Dr. Carlson. Boy, he's rude. And so, but, you know, rarely do people post, but boy, when it comes to a, a bad night in a restaurant or a lousy stay in a hotel, which, you know, is a whole other problem because uh, uh, the ratings that people find online about healthcare providers are uh, perhaps less robust and, and transparent than they should be. I think some of that could have to do with power differentials. You know, doctors are seen as powerful figures right. within our society. Nurses, not so much, but doctors are a powerful figure. Whereas a waiter, a waitress, a hotel manager, there there isn't that that uh, that societal structure that causes that sense of a power differential. You know, in a Absolutely sense, right. the consumer feels yeah. more powerful than the server or the 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 bar manager or whatever. So I think those, yeah. those in our society in particular, I feel like that is likely a, that is likely something that we're may not be consciously aware of, but it's there. And before we take a break, I just wanted to mention, you know, you, you mentioned in your book and the book is structured around these five principles of hospitality that payer or payer, um model. Fair, fair Payer. model right yeah so mm -hmm. p is prepare a is anticipate e is engage then the next e is evaluate and r is reward so Correct. prepare anticipate engage evaluate reward so are those principles something that you and stowe identified or are these principles that the hospitality industry uses kind of universally Great question. Yeah, no, the, that model is an original creation of uh, of the two of us, mm -hmm. of Stowe and me, um, and it it represents the synthesis, uh, Keith, of our uh, experience in both categories, having been in hospitality and having been in healthcare. 
Um, and what we tried to do is to put that together in a kind of an interesting, simple acronym that would be easy to introduce to colleagues in healthcare. So, you know, say, here's the payer model or five things you need to think about. But hopefully it's not lost on your listeners that that specifically we pronounce it payer because we know payer is a term that turns a lot of heads in healthcare. Mm -hmm. um, but our payer is exactly what you stated, prepare, anticipate, engage, evaluate, and reward. And each of those in the book, uh, for each of those, we have very specific recommendations on how healthcare providers can implement uh, each of those components in practice. And, um, Again, inspired by uh, not just our experience, but also the data that we got in our, our survey. Mm -hmm. Healthcare and healthcare delivery, the cost of healthcare, the difficulties in even getting an appointment. We can go on and on with these very universal issues that I think all of us can identify with from either side of the stethoscope. I mean, just recently, I was trying to make an appointment for an MRI, and one provider in town wasn't scheduling for six or seven weeks, you know? And just recently, I actually interviewed for a job, and it was a neurology office, and they told me that new patients, there was a minimum 12-month wait for new patients, and that for established patients... The, the wait was generally two to three months, though what they were doing is double and triple booking mm. a lot of patients each day in order mm. to get people in who needed to be seen. Mm. So one, I didn't want to work there for those reasons because I know what that will cause the clientele to feel and how those feelings of the clientele are going to be reflected in how they might behave when they come for an appointment and the mm -hmm. the disgruntledness and the ire that we're beginning their relationship with when they first walk through the door. So my question to myself was, do I want to be involved with that? And do I want to be on the receiving end of the patient's ire, even though that ire is well-deserved, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if we look at all these pieces and we put it all together, plus cost, uh, American healthcare, and we're speaking specifically about American healthcare here because I can't speak to other countries, is in trouble on many, many, many levels. And mm -hmm. the hospitality industry feels like it's in a different place in terms of how maybe members of our society view it. Mm -hmm. So what are your feelings before we take a break about closing the gap? And is it, do you really feel it's possible for healthcare entities to adopt some of these principles and actually operationalize them? Is it possible? Yes. Uh, <clears throat> answer to your last question, a definitive yes. Okay. And so much of it has to do with training and attitude, but there's a fundamental difference in the way people in healthcare view the relationship with patients and the way people in hospitality do with customers. And mm. let me just describe this briefly, and, and then we can certainly explore it uh, a bit later. And that difference is in the way patients or customers 
are treated or served, and there's a difference. Okay, in the hospitality industry, they have learned over time and developed programs uh, to to encourage this. That as long as you treat everybody the same, you can serve them differently. If you think about that, give an example. Uh, everybody's going to enjoy the same cuisine in a restaurant, you know. But some people have preferred access to reservations. When you get to the uh, airport, uh, if you're a member of the frequent flyer program for that airline, you might be invited to step out of the big line and go to the other line and check in there. Now you're all going to fly the same airplane. You're going to get the same time, you know, and so forth. Um, same is true in the hotel business. You might have a, a, a portion of the front desk that invites you to register there versus the, uh, the general registration area because you're, you're a frequent guest of, of that brand. So that's a, an example of serving people differently, but treating them the same. Now, in healthcare, obviously, everyone has to be treated the same. We all get the same clinical expertise uh, and benefit from our clinical practitioners. but the healthcare industry has yet to discover, and maybe this is because they find it a bit <clears throat> potentially controversial, that you can serve patients differently. So uh, we can explore that if you like, but it's an interesting idea because that's the basis of all of these loyalty programs and hospitality that have strengthened the relationship between the providers and the customers. Mm. I'll give you a quick statistic that illustrates the importance of that. Uh, the literature suggests that if you or I or any of your listeners go to a particular hospital for a procedure uh, today, that uh, fewer than 40%, 40% of us will return to the same hospital or hospital system in the next five years for any kind of medical procedure. Just think about that. So the, it's a 60% attrition rate within a five-year period of time. What that means is that the obviously during that five year period of time, there's probably lots of occasions where people need health care and, and they would need the services of a hospital specifically. Uh, what that means is that the providers have not engaged in programs that are designed to encourage loyalty. That's alien to the idea of a hospitality provider, because once you patronize them, for the first time, you know what it's like. I mean, they're up and down the aisle in the airplane asking you to sign up for on their frequency program and so forth. And the whole reason for that is to get to know you better so that they can serve you differently. Mm -hmm. yes. That doesn't exist in healthcare. So we're happy to explore that further because it's controversial, but we think it's coming to healthcare. Yeah. So we're going to take a break. And when we come back, let's start with this notion of the loyalty program and the controversy there. And we'll go on from there to some other ideas that we need to explore. So hang in there with us. We'll be right back for the second half of episode 441 of the Nurse Keith Show with Peter Yesovich. Welcome back. We're here for the second half of the episode. We're here again with friend of the pod and my new friend and colleague, Peter Yesowich. And Peter, right before the break, you brought up something controversial and interesting that I think is worth going into just for a little bit before we move on to some other questions. And that is this issue of loyalty programs. Now, 
We all know it. Many of us have access to different types of loyalty programs, whether it's your local um, cafe where you buy nine lattes, you get the 10th one free. Um, we used to have lots of little cards in our wallet, and now they usually just have it in their in their register, their, their computer, which is much more convenient than carrying all those punch cards. And we've seen it in many places. We see it in hospitality. We see it with um with airlines for sure right like you mentioned what about healthcare why is this a controversial issue and how can it actually happen without the controversial part yeah terrific question um and it starts again keith with the the premise that you have to be willing to entertain the idea that <clears throat> as long as you treat patients the same, there's an argument that suggests that you may be able to serve them differently, you know, based on the relationship that you either have or would like to develop with them. So let's explore that a little bit. Um, I mentioned a moment ago that the there appears to be about a 60% attrition rate in terms of repeat patronage of hospitals over a five-year period. Now, if you think of the financial implications of that, just those alone are, are significant for providers. But more to the point, um, you know, as we get older, something happens, and that is we consume more healthcare, right? So if you just think about the lifetime value <clears throat> of what's being lost, uh, it's dramatic. Now, some practitioners uh, say to me, well, wait a minute, it's not all about the money. And I say, you're right. It's not all about the money because we could promote loyalty that would enhance well-being. Well, how would that work? Well, if we had a relationship where you were more loyal to me as a provider, <clears throat> I might, for example, as a hospital, uh, give you free uh, prostate cancer screenings or free lung cancer screenings. I might invite you to a series of lectures from our, you know, preeminent clinical staff on, um, you know, how to uh, shop and cook in a more healthy fashion, you know, that would enhance your well-being. Uh, I might invite you to complimentary wellness classes, uh, fitness classes, and so forth. Again, you and I could write a whole list you know, that would be uh, very appealing to people that would really be designed to promote more uh, healthy lifestyles. Now, where I tend to get um, a lot of resistance when I, I raise this question is, uh, correctly, uh, some practitioners say, well, you can't do that because it's illegal. And yes, in fact, it is illegal if there's a financial inducement for someone with the government insurance, Medicare, Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So it cannot be translatable into any kind of uh, direct financial value. But all the things I just described to you are not uh, items that or, or benefits that would have a direct financial value associated. In fact, again, it would be very beneficial for consumers to be invited to engage in behaviors that really promote uh, uh, and enhance their well-being. So that kind of debunks that argument. And oh, by the way, as you know, you know, two-thirds of the people with health uh, insurance in this country have a commercial insurance. And everything I've just described uh, and more is appropriate. Hmm. So the question is, well, would that really work? Well, let me give you a little scenario. We opened the book uh, with a scenario that's kind of fun. It's a 45-year-old gentleman lives in Ohio. He's in the insurance business. And he goes to his PCP, and the PCP says, well, it's time for your first colonoscopy. He says, okay. 
So he goes through all the brain damage of trying to get the appointment with the local gastro. And uh, he finally gets the appointment that works for everybody. He shows up. He gets the clipboard. <laughs> he dreaded clipboard. Yeah. And then uh, he hasn't met the physician yet. So he's on the gurney. You know, they're rolling him into the uh, operating room. And he sees this head come over him as he's lying down. And this head looks down and goes, well, uh, Mr. Carlson, good to see you uh, today. You know, we've got a pretty busy day, so we're going to get right to it. And that's about the extent of the introduction from the position. Goes through the procedure, awakens a little later, gets out of the fog, and he sees another face he doesn't recognize and says, well, how do we do? And they said, well, we're not quite sure. We'll let you know. So the guy worries all the way home. You know, four or five days later, he gets the good news. Uh, no polyps. Everything's clear. He says, terrific. Okay. Six weeks later, he and his wife say, you know, we really need a break. So they book a vacation to Vegas. So they go online and they look at all the options and where they can stay. And they look at the rooms and the views and the shows and the restaurants. And so we're very excited about it. They get to the hotel because this guy's a member of the hotel's loyalty program. He shows up at the front desk and they say, well, Mr. Carlson, we've got some wonderful news for you. We've upgraded you to a suite. And you say, wow, that's fabulous. I had no idea. So you get up to the suite. Everything's wonderful. You have a great time. Uh, it's time to check out. You want to make sure that the bill's correct. So you pull it up on the app on your phone. You don't have to go stand in line and, and so forth. And a couple of strokes on the phone and you pay your bill. You go downstairs. Your bag's already loaded in the cab. You get back to Ohio. Two weeks later, you get your visa bill. And the visa bill is exactly what you thought it should be from your experience. Then you see a little notation that you just got 3,000 more reward points for your trip to Vegas. So we asked the question, why did you not get reward points for your colonoscopy? And most Especially because you were a good boy and you showed up for it. <laughs> most people laugh. You get a point just for that. And clinicians, they, you know, they, they say, no, what? I said, well, maybe if you pay with the right credit card, you will. But the point is, uh -huh. why don't you get rewarded for your patronage? Uh -huh. Now, acknowledging the issue I shared before, but you can't use, you know, financial inducements for people who govern insurance. I get that. But having said that, why wouldn't you want to start that relationship? And, and, you know, that gentleman is probably going to get another four or five colonoscopies in the course of his career, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, why wouldn't you want to encourage him to come back to the same place? Well, that's the whole idea between treating everyone the same, but serving them differently, because mm -hmm. that that begins you to allows you to begin the creation of these loyalty relationships. And by the way, that has been the foundation of the success of the hospitality industry for the past 20 years. Yes. You know, your, your point, you know, it's cascaded everywhere. It's now at Starbucks. Even my local car wash, mm -hmm. you know, uh, rewards me, you Absolutely. know, for my repeat patronage. So Absolutely. why not healthcare? Well, we think it's time. And we think uh, you'll begin to see as more healthcare providers have to compete for patients that they will begin to discover that there's a case to be made for serving certain cohorts of patients differently, so long as we treat them the same. By the well, way, people understand that. You know? Well, you said it here first, Peter, and hopefully you'll remember me when you're rich and famous, when everyone realizes <laughs> how right you are. Now, some people listening might think, okay, so 
what I'm hearing is that Peter's worked in hospitality all these years and you know, he doesn't understand anything about healthcare and mm-hmm. he's just applying what he learned in the hotels and restaurant industry right. to healthcare. However, I mean, yes, you've been deeply involved in the hospitality industry for a long, long time. However, you also were the chief growth officer for Cancer Treatment Centers of America from right. 2010 to 2020. And anyone who's anyone who works in healthcare or probably doesn't work in healthcare has heard of Cancer Treatment Centers of America. So it's not that you're just trying to take what you learned in hospitality and just kind of like put a transparency over healthcare and say, okay, take our model and apply it to healthcare. You've actually worked in the healthcare industry for a decade. So, Mm -hmm. and chief growth growth officer means that you are trying to help them increase their their presence in the industry. So you've been, you've kind of been on both sides. Yeah, that was uh, actually the inspiration for this book. I was going to ask uh, you that. And yeah, and for my my co-author, Stowe, who has been an academic uh, as the dean of uh, the hospitality program, University of Nevada, Las Vegas, for 10 years. Uh, but in Houston, uh, where he's at the University of Houston, he also had a joint, uh, a faculty appointment at MD Anderson. So mm-hmm. he, he had, uh, again, a foot in, in each camp. But more to my experience, um, the CTCA, uh, Cancer Treatment Centers of America, which is now part of City of Hope out of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. um, had a, a philosophy uh, that they practiced uh, wherein they did they did deliver uh, all of their services through the lens of hospitable healthcare, um, and it was remarkable to see the impact that had on patient satisfaction. I mean, if you think about um, at CTCA, uh, we, they serve roughly uh, about fifteen thousand patients a year, um, majority of whom had a an advanced stage diagnosis uh, or a complex uh, diagnosis with comorbidities. And it was remarkable that uh, we would consistently get um, incredible HCAP scores. In fact, most recent recent HCAPs uh, scores that were released a couple of weeks ago, uh, there are now only three uh, CTCA hospitals. There were five when I was there, two have been sold. Two of the three have uh, five-star HCAPs, okay? They're uh, among the 80 in the country that out of the 3,000 that are measured that have five stars, okay, two of them. So that says something about the fact that their service delivery is hospitable, particularly given the fact that this is the most difficult diagnosis to treat, as you know. Um, But it was remarkable. I mean, uh, we had no... Uh, front desk when you entered the lobby. It was like entering the, the lobby of a, a four-star hotel. There was a piano with you know soft music. There was someone to greet you personally by name. There was a lot of attention to colors, to textures, to ambient music, to scent, so forth, all those kinds of things. Uh, but importantly, uh, it was all about the uh, the service delivery to the patient, acknowledging that these are patients and loved family members uh, who arrived with incredible anxiety about their diagnosis and their treatment. So we did everything that we could, to, manageable, to go ahead and 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 manage that anxiety down. And that was one of the reasons why we would consistently get you know figure you know ratings of nine out of ten 
uh, tragically, even when you know patients uh, were unable to successfully fight their disease, the family members would give us ratings of nine out of ten. Now that was remarkable. I used to scratch my head and say, "How is it possible when the clinical outcome was was so uh, tragic that we would still get these ratings?" And the answer was. It was all about the way the patients were treated. Exactly. And, uh, so anyway, that's that's part of what inspired the book. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I had a family member die last year of cancer. She was very young. She's in her 30s. And um, my niece. And even though she died, it was a four-year um, battle, which we often refer to, you know, cancer as, you know, fighting. It's a battle. And our family was very grateful to um, Mass General in Boston mm-hmm. because of mm-hmm. the dedication of the staff and how they treated her and how they treated her children and her husband and you know what okay. they what they expressed as she went through her experience and the way she was treated every step of the way by her team and it really felt like a team. So there's a very real world example in my in my life. So I I totally understand that I'm. You know, it's great that you've been on both sides of this equation, hospitality and, you know, cancer care, hospital care. Now, here's a question for you. Um, While you were speaking about, you know, this ability to create loyalty, this ability to, you know, treat patients and make them feel special, basically, and make them want to come back. I'm curious, have you at all looked at or considered taking a deeper uh, dive into this newly emerging industry of concierge medicine where people, they Mm -hmm. do an end run around their insurance because they have the money to do so. And they sign up with a Mm -hmm. doctor and that doctor is basically available to them 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And Mm -hmm. they get treated like they really matter. Have you looked at this notion of concierge? Yes, uh, and it's it's a wonderful question, and because it is a perfect illustration of how you can serve patients differently, mm-hmm. but treat them the same. Mm. That's what concierge medicine is all about. Mm-hmm. Uh, it basically is carving out a you know population of patients who want to be served differently. You know, they want more immediate access and so forth. Um, they still receive the same quality of clinical care that someone who is say, going to a practice that is that also accommodates patients who are not concierge patients. They see the same doctors and nurses, and they and they presumably get the same quality of clinical care. It's just they're served differently. And it has to do with access, primarily. It has to do with recognition, you know. And it's a wonderful example of what I was trying to express previously. Um, and, you know, it's, um, you know, there, there's some people who, um, I think are critical of that idea because they identify that as, you know, excessive privilege. But I, I think we as consumers today understand that not all customers are or should be treated, excuse me, uh, served the same. You know, we realize that that some of us have a different kind of relationship with a provider. You know, even, you know, we were joking before about, you know, Starbucks does that, mm-hmm. you know, the local car wash does that. The department store does that. You know, everybody says, well, there, there are clusters of, of, of customers within this great big pie of customers. And if we can tease out how they are 
have common characteristics and begin to serve them differently, while we treat them all the same, that's a formula for growth. Because what it does is it creates this loyalty that produces the longer term relationships. So, and concierge management is a wonderful example of that. Again, it's just, it's kind of a, a, a wonderful, pure example of what I was trying to express uh, yeah. a moment ago. And, you know, and around those arguments, you know, that, you know, uh, if I think about sort of the the social justice lens, like we put on our social justice lens, then, you know, some people might really, it might really kind of raise their hackles around, you know, wealthy people, of course, have more access to concierge medicine, da, da, da. And I totally recognize that. Um, my hope would be that this particular not concierge medicine, but the principles that you're putting forth in your book, that they can be applied anywhere. They can be applied in a federally qualified health center right. in, you know, in the city that serves, mm -hmm. you know, people on Medicaid and Medicare, um, underserved communities, that there's no reason why underserved communities can't also be treated um in this manner as well, because if you're a federally qualified health center and you have to see everyone who walks through your door, for instance, and you know the majority of your patients who come in the door are on Medicaid or some sort of assistance program from the government, there's no reason why you wouldn't want their loyalty because you want them to come back because you need to generate revenue just like any other healthcare entity. So there's no reason why a lot of these principles or all of these principles can't be applied to in any milieu, right? That's precisely the point, Keith, mm -hmm. that if you think about the, the five kind of themes of deficit, yeah. you know, understanding the bill, yeah. being, uh, being appreciated for your patronage, Mm -hmm. service resolution, mm -hmm. the arrival environment. Mm -hmm. These have nothing to do with elitism. Mm -hmm. They have everything to do with service quality. So it doesn't matter if you are a Medicare or Medicaid patient or you have, you know, the Cadillac commercial program. You know, the principles are the same. And I think it's a, a wonderful question because sometimes we – we, we get this uh, question that maybe we have miscued people to say, well, this is only appropriate if you're wealthy. And that's not the case. This yeah. is appropriate regardless of your financial uh, uh, condition uh, that you bring to the exchange with uh, the healthcare provider. Mm -hmm. uh, now, the ability to, to execute some against some of these deficits may change as a function of the resources you have. But it's still the very same themes of deficit that apply regardless of your insurance uh, as an individual. So it's a, it's a wonderful question. I want to make sure your listeners, you know, understand that because if you looked at those 22, whether ease of difficulty, getting an appointment, understanding a bill, resolving disputes, you know, that has nothing to do with your ability to pay. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I, I appreciate that point a lot. And the book is really wonderful hospitable healthcare, just what the patient ordered, how hospitality can improve the patient experience. And it really is all about the patient experience. However, we all know that if the patient experience is improved and we increase, like you're talking about loyalty, we, we decrease attrition from our roles of patients, then 
we can have more revenue coming in and we can create more of the healthcare that we truly want. So I think it's a really wonderful model. And even though there's a lot more to talk about, we need to wrap up. And I have four quick lightning round questions I ask all my guests and they have nothing to do with anything we've just been talking about. So are you game for a quick little lightning round? Let's go. Okay. Let's do it. So the first question, Peter, is um, how do you define success either personally or professionally? Uh, to me, uh, uh, success is defined by really a personal sense of um, I go back to Maslow's hierarchy you know, mm -hmm. of, of self-actualization. Mm -hmm. I feel balanced. You know, I feel balanced in terms of all of the elements that that we need to juggle, right, to get equilibrium in our lives. Uh, and that doesn't mean that it's, um, you know, strictly about uh, health or finances or the climate. It's, it's all of those things together. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's it's uh, the balance that you achieve in all of those so that when you go to bed at night, uh, you drift away in, you know, 10, 12 minutes. And when you awaken in the morning, you know, you're fresh and your perspective is positive and you're you're ready to learn and discover and share all over again. Well said. Okay. Second question. Could you name or describe someone who's inspired you in the course of your life? They can be living or dead, famous, or someone none of us would ever have heard of before. Yes, absolutely. Um, I think a source of the most inspiration for me was my dad. Mm, tell me why. And um, my dad, um, remarkable man. Uh, he uh, was a uh, a kid, a son of immigrants that uh, moved from Lithuania to uh, New York City to Queens. Mm. Um, he was an only child, as he likes to say. His ticket out of uh, Queens was his ability to throw a ball through a hoop. And uh, he got a basketball scholarship to college, first uh, in our family to attend college. Um, he um, excelled at that. Uh, then when uh, the war broke out, he, he joined the Navy and the Second World War, uh, came back and <clears throat> decided to go to law school. Uh, and he went to law school, became a very uh, prominent um, legal scholar. Uh, and ultimately was appointed to the Supreme Court of uh, New York. Awesome. And he was a justice on the Supreme Court uh, for probably 25 years. Uh, very modest guy, uh, incredibly um, uh, engaging. Uh, I could tell you stories that you, you that you wouldn't believe, like uh, uh, after dinner every night, uh, my brother and I would, would be seated. He'd go to the library, pull out a book. He'd say, open to page 110 and start reading. And we'd start reading and we'd hit a word that we couldn't pronounce because he knew it. And he said, well, look at He said, what's that mean? And we said, I have no idea. We'll look it up. He'd hand you the dictionary. And so we'd look it up and he said, okay, now use that in a sentence. I love that. You know, can you imagine going out, you know, every night after dinner going, anyway, he was just an incredible man. He was, he was amazingly uh, supportive of me and, uh, and uh, lived to 94. Mm. And his name? Paul. Yes, which junior, yeah, junior, yes. Wonderful. Thanks for yeah. sharing that. I appreciate that a lot. Okay. Third question, penultimate question. Is there a book or a movie, not necessarily an absolute favorite, but a book or movie that has it has had an impact on the way you think, the way you live, the way you work, the way you approach your relationships? Honestly, no. No? No, that I can't think of any in particular, you know, because it's been you know, a collection of a lot of, you know, sources of input, but, uh, you know, I, I would have difficulty, Keith, identifying mm. 
a specific source, to be yeah. honest with you. Yeah. That's fine. I'm sure your yeah. library is filled with with um, things that inspire you. Okay, last question. If you were named king of the world tomorrow, which I think would likely be a good idea, what's one of the first things you would want to do to improve the lives of your subjects, bearing in mind that as king, you have ultimate power? So this would just be your first act as king. Well, you know, the thing that I think about all the time, I'm sure many of your listeners do, is the the horrible inequities that exist around the world. Yes. Uh, in terms of poverty, in terms of um, a lack of uh, access to health care, uh, the discord that exists in terms of, you know, what's happening in places like Ukraine. And so my answer to that question is I would uh, I would immediately put a stop of all of that kind of antagonistic behavior. But I would at the same time uh, ensure that uh, that, um, you know, everybody had access to uh, the basic necessities uh, mm -hmm. that would be required to uh, to live what they would consider to be a a, a a more comfortable uh, and uh, existence that would allow them to become more fulfilled. Yeah. A life of dignity, it sounds like. Very much so. That's a yeah. wonderful word. Absolutely. Yeah, wonderful well, word. Very, I love that. That's beautiful, Peter. Well, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for sending me a copy of the book and reaching out. And um, sorry, I haven't gotten to meet Stowe, but I know you're dividing and conquering all these podcasts and each of you are taking on different ones and people can find you at hospitablehealthcare.com. I highly recommend they order the book on Amazon or from the website. It came out early in September, so it's there for you. And if you want to give it to your manager, your supervisor, the CEO of your hospital. If you are a CEO of a hospital or health center, please buy a copy. And Peter, thank you so much. I hope this book, I hope this book is an enormous hit and that you sell millions of copies. This has been an absolute delight uh, for me. I've enjoyed our conversation. I love your perspective and, uh, and I hope the listeners learned something from this about uh, the power of hospitable healthcare. It goes back to that question that uh, where we began, and that is, you know, we all have a, a story about a personal experience with healthcare has gone wrong, and, and that's very rarely about the clinical outcome. It's because of the way we're served, and that's entirely fixable. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Peter. Well, there you have it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Nurse Keith Show. Remember, the show notes are at nursekeith.com or anywhere you happen to be listening. You'll find the links. And remember, speaking of links, go to hospitablehealthcare.com. Read all about the book and the payer model right there on the website and order the book from there or from Amazon. I hope you feel uplifted and empowered from this episode. And I encourage you to take inspired action every day in the interest of your personal and professional satisfaction and development. Please consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com forward slash nurse Keith. And we are proud members of the Health Podcast Network at Health podcastnetwork.com and we're adroitly produced by Rob Johnston of 520R Podcasting. And before we say goodbye, I'll leave you with this quote by Helen Keller. The best and most beautiful things in the world cannot be seen or even touched. They must be felt with the heart. Be well, dig deep, seek joy, keep in touch. This is Nurse Keith saying adios till next time from beautiful Santa Fe, New Mexico and the inimitable Peter Yesowich, my new friend and colleague, saying Arrivederci from Sonoma, California. 
Thank you, Peter, from beautiful Sonoma, California, and we will catch all of you on the proverbial flip side.